This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. Boy, I'm looking forward to being with you guys today and sharing some time together. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and it's my privilege to guide us for the next 30 minutes or so as we continue to engage with God. So go ahead, grab your programs. When you walked in, you should have received one of these. If you didn't, you might want to grab one. Uh, They're back in the back. Grab this card that says start here. Get your name on it. Get your email address on it because we're going to use it a little bit later. I ran on stage. Ran on stage, which is never good because I was worshiping, having a good time, praying. All of a sudden, the song ended. And the team's looking like, Holy Spirit, where is Kevin? That's what you say. So I'm a little tired. Grab your teaching notes. Uh, They're going to have the Bible verses we're looking at today. Uh, Maybe I'm just acclimating. I just came down off of like 9,000 feet elevation where I was camping and fishing and catching uh, fish, catching some snakes, which is very exciting. If we're friends on Facebook, check it out. I put a picture on there. So fun. My wife didn't think so, the the snakes, but I did. I did. So it was very fun. Anyway, get that stuff ready. We're going to have a good time together. So something you should know about me is I get ideas in my head sometimes. And when I get an idea in my head, I just kind of think whatever that idea is will absolutely happen. doesn't really matter what it is. So when I was a kid, I I loved playing soccer and doing other things. I got this idea in my head one day, I should be an actor. Like, that would be an excellent choice. So I got an agent. Uh, I went and auditioned for The Sandlot, the movie The Sandlot. Uh, Clearly, I didn't get it, or else I would be famous like all the other kids from The Sandlot. Um, Auditioned for a Hot Wheels commercial. Did those two auditions, realized I am a horrible actor. Stop doing that. Um, Let's see, one Friday night, I didn't have a date, and I was watching a magician. Maybe that's why I didn't have a date. And uh, he was juggling, and I thought, I could juggle, no problem. So I grabbed some beanbags, learned how to juggle. It's a great party trick. Uh, One year for my birthday, I remember uh, thinking, I really want a horse. I had no reason to get a horse. Never ridden a horse really before in my life. But I thought this year, I think I was probably 10, 9 or 10, I want a pony, I want a horse. And so I said to my parents, hey, I want to have an outdoor birthday party because I thought that that would up the opportunity for them to give me a horse because you can't bring a horse into a living room. So we had this birthday party at Finkbeiner's Park. There's a park with my last name in my town named after my great-grandfather. So we went to Finkbeiner's Park, had my birthday party there. My parents, they blindfolded me to give me my present. Now you can imagine, I've asked for a pony I believe I'm getting a pony with everything in me. I'm sure. I don't know where we're going to keep our horse or our pony, but we're going to get it for sure. They blindfold me. All our friends are there. And they ask us the question, my twin brother and I, because we both said we wanted a pony, both blindfolded. said, what do you think we got you? And we both screamed out, you got us a horse. And we took the blindfold off and it was a scooter. And (laughs) now it wasn't one of the Razor scooters. You know, like those are okay. It was a cool 80s scooter with like the zigzag designs and the big tires. It was a cool scooter. The problem was it wasn't a horse. You know what I mean? Now, I don't know if you're like me, but for me, when I get a thought in my head, I can believe it with everything in me. Like I'm sure I'm going to get that thing that I want. And when I get so sure, no empirical evidence, just I'm sure I'm going to get it. And then when I don't get it, it just makes me so sad. Have you ever had that experience where you're sure you have no reason to believe that you'll get it. You're just so sure. You have, you have, here's the word. You have faith that you're going to get that thing that you hope for. And then what happens when you don't get it? Oh, you're so sad. You're discouraged. You're frustrated. I, I had faith I was going to get a pony. 
Like, I knew it. I, I had visions of riding up here on stage with my pony. And I didn't, I didn't get a horse that year. Even though I believed for a horse. Even though I knew I would get a horse. I had faith that I would be riding up into the sunset with my 11-year-old girlfriend on that horse. And, and no horse. That's cold. That's, I'm not even going to dignify what she just said. But I'll let you know, hecklers belong in the back. So, we're in week three of a series called God Never Said That. And in this series, we are exploring some commonly held beliefs on things that we're sure God said. We're looking at things that we believe God promised, God offered, God said. And we're asking this question, did God in the Bible, did God really say that? Or has it kind of become this, this like widespread belief based on tradition that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation? And here's why we're looking at this. Because if we believe that God promises things, says things, and offers things that God never promised, never said, never offered, then when we don't get that thing that we think God promised, when we don't, we don't experience that thing that we believe God said, then we can become disillusioned. We can become hurt. We can begin to question ourselves. Do I really know God? Am I really hearing from God? We can begin to question God. We can begin to get frustrated with God's church, this community, this gathering together. But the problem is, sometimes God never promised a horse. We just think he promised a horse. And then when we don't get our horse, we get so frustrated because we wanted to ride our horse into the sunset and we're left with a scooter. And so we're exploring some of these commonly held beliefs. And today, here's our question. Because sometimes we think that, that faith, that believing something, that wanting it, that trusting God for it is the same as God actually doing it. So the question for today is, did God really say that faith can fix anything? That if you just believe enough, God will answer that prayer. God will do that thing. God will move that mountain. And there are a, a few texts in the Bible that people take. And remember, in week one, we talked about taking like one text and pulling it out of context and making that like my, my Bible verse. And I said, it's kind of like, a, like a, a prison shank, like a knife. And we take those Bible verses and we stab each other with them. So we're zooming out and we're not looking at one verse taken out of context. We're, we're trying to look at, at whole stories, whole passages to try to figure out, is that what God meant when he said this thing? The question today, can faith fix anything? How many of you like the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Do we have any fans of that movie? Oh my gosh, that is the funniest. I haven't seen the second one, but the first one, so funny. And as I was writing this message, I began to think about the father in that movie. Remember, he always had Windex with him? And, and you'd get like a cut on your arm or something would go wrong and he'd start squirting Windex at people. And he would say, Windex can heal anything. Windex can fix anything. So the message today is called Faith, the Windex of Life. It is faith like Windex? If you just have enough of it, can it fix anything? Can you just squirt it on any sore and have it go away? Is, is that what faith is? If we believe that, that if we just have enough faith, our kids will grow up happy, healthy, well-adjusted. If we just have enough faith, our partner will be faithful to us and we'll live happily ever after. If I just have enough faith, I'll always have enough money. Get that gold all up in my grill. If I just have enough faith, if we believe that to be true, and then our kids run away and they don't come home, if we believe that to be true, 
And our spouse doesn't stop at the courtroom just before signing the divorce papers, but they actually go through with it and sign the divorce papers and walk away. If we believe that to be true, and we lose our job, and we fall on hard times, and the money isn't there, all of a sudden we begin to question ourselves. I must not have enough faith. Because if I just had enough of this thing, whatever faith is, if I just had a little more of it, this wouldn't have happened. Or we question God. God, I had faith. You didn't come through. But what if God never said that faith was the Windex of life? See, there are whole church movements that perpetuate this idea, this myth, that if we just had enough faith, in God, in his power, in his, in his healing work, that we would always have a happy life, always have a good life. Nothing would ever go wrong. You would never get sick. Someone would never die too young. And they take a couple key verses, one in particular. It's when Jesus is on, a, on the cross when he's dying and he utters out these words, it is finished. It is finished. To say that God has finished all the work he will ever do in this world and all you need to do is just have enough faith in God just enough. And all of the finished work of Jesus on the cross can be yours. Now, we're going to dive into that verse in a few minutes and ask this question, what is finished? Because it's kind of a nebulous phrase, it. What is the it that Jesus is talking about when he says, it is finished? Because if we don't understand that, we can be like my friend. I have a friend who, his brother was dying of cancer. When he and I were talking, his, it was a couple years ago, his, his brother was in the last stages of cancer. And my friend grew up with this myth that if you just have enough faith, it'll fix everything. And I remember him telling me, I prayed for my brother just a few days before he died with faith. I mean, standing on assurance that God would heal him. And then he died the next day. Now, my friend is still following Jesus, loves God. So I know he's not blaming God for that, but he's left with two options. One, he could blame himself. I didn't have enough faith to bring my brother before God to experience healing. I didn't have enough faith. Or two, he could blame his dead brother. My brother didn't have enough faith to trust God for healing. He doesn't want to blame his brother. His brother's dead. So he's left blaming himself. I said in our last series that, that the devil, he has a one-two punch to knock us out of the game of life, to, to pull are trusting God away. The first is he lies to us. He takes truth and he turns it just a little bit. And if you turn it just a little bit and you go far enough down a path, you get way off from where God led, wanted you to go. And then he condemns us when we, don't, when we act on the lie that we are believing. Here's what it looks like now. If you just had enough faith, your brother, who you love, would still be alive. Now carry that out to its logical conclusion. How many of you would like to stand before God and have him say to you, if you just had a little more faith, I would have answered your prayer and your brother would still be alive. You see, these are the types of myths that when we play them out, they pull us so far away from the heart of God. So what is faith? How does God define it? How do we understand it? How is it lived out? Well, the book of Hebrews gives us a definition of faith. And Hebrews is a letter in the New Testament of the Bible. And the author gives us a definition of faith. And then he goes to great lengths to show us what it looks like to be a person of faith. 
And here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 11. It's on your notes, and I'm going to have to to highlight, summarize some of it, but you can go back and read Hebrews 11 this week as you're spending time with God. Here's what the author says. Faith is confidence. You can underline confidence in what we hope for, and it's assurance. You can underline assurance about what we do not see. And the word faith in the original language, it's a scientific term having to do with a conclusion that rests upon facts. It's not about feelings. Faith is actually a conclusion that we come to based on facts. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 is telling us there's a certain thing that we can have absolute faith in. He said it is the assurance of this specific thing. And here's what the thing is. We can have assurance that God will ultimately come through in the end. That's what he's telling us, that God's ultimate plan will prevail. Which should raise the question, what's God's ultimate plan? And we're going to get there in a few minutes, so hold on to that in the back of your mind. But he says that there is empirical evidence that God will ultimately come through and that God's plan will ultimately succeed. When some of us came to put our faith in Jesus or our hope in Jesus or our trust in Jesus, it was based on a feeling, an emotion. Maybe if you were a teenager, it happened at camp, which by the way, our junior and senior high students are leaving for camp today. They'll be gone for a week. Can I call us church to pray for our students every day? Would you pray with me? We have over 20 students. I think it's 24, 25 students going to camp. This could be the place where God changes lives. Would you join me? Just just nod. Just don't look blankly. Nod. Give me some sort of indication that you will pray with me this week for our students. That's how it was for me. I came to put my faith in Jesus at a camp, but it was based on a feeling. I just, I just had the sense God is real and I want to follow him. And that's a great place to start your faith. But the author of Hebrews says it's not a good place to end your faith because feelings go up and feelings go down. Feelings are good. Feelings can be bad. He says you can start your faith there, but faith actually rests on fact. And there are reasons to believe in God. There are reasons to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. And then he goes on to give us a whole list of people who had faith, who were filled with faith, who were faithful people. And when he starts out this list, we're going to think that he's actually saying, yeah, faith can fix anything. And you'll have to read this on your own, but he goes off with this whole list of people. He talks about Old Testament women and men, a guy like Enoch, who was so filled with faith that he never died. God just came and scooped him up and took him to heaven. That's a lot of faith. He talks about Abraham, who was not only extremely wealthy, but became the father of an entire nation. He had so much faith that God blessed him financially and the other way. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. His wife, Sarah, who in her 90s was the most beautiful woman people had ever seen. Men were fighting over her in her 90s. Some of you are thinking she had so much faith, God gave her a makeover every year. And she was barren. She could not have kids, but she believed in God and had kids. Then there's Noah. He had so much faith in God that when God caused a flood to wipe out this whole community, Noah and his family were spared because of their faith. There's a guy named Joseph who it looked like everything was going bad. Brothers betrayed him, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. He worked up the ranks as a slave, and then his master's wife accused him of raping her, which he never did. He was, he was on the straight and narrow. He got thrown into prison, and everything's going bad. But it says he had faith in God, and he rose to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. 
goes on to say there were women whose children had died and they had so much faith, God raised their children from the dead. There were men who had so much faith that they fought lions. And I don't know about you, but I read that list and I'm thinking, if that's what faith produces, I'll take some of that. Thank you very much. I like the idea of my kids always being taken care of, of having money. Of, and I, I feel like I've got enough faith that my wife is. She's going to be the most beautiful woman at 90. I'm feeling good. about She's on a good track, baby. Where are you? She's on a good track. Oh, man, she's so embarrassed. I'm going to get that later. And if that's where the story ended, this would be a different sermon. But he doesn't end his list of faithful people there. Notice what he says in verse 35. These are heroes of faith. These are women and men who who exude faith in God. There were others, faithful people, who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. They were beaten, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin. They were destitute, no money. They were persecuted. They were mistreated. The world, the author says, was not worthy of them. They had so much faith. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These are faith-filled people who trusted God. And what was the result? Tortured? imprisoned, destitute, sawed in two, and it wasn't a magic act. They were sawed in two, even though they had faith. Now, just think about this for a second. What is happening? Why would the author give us this great picture of faithful women and men, and everything went perfect for them? And then swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. And I'm sorry, this side of the church, you always get the downside. I always go bad over here. It's like, love God, you know, horrible sin. You know, I'm sorry for you. But on this side over here, no no disrespect, just as faithful, sawed in two, imprisoned, no money, left by themselves. I think the reason is, Because the author wants us to understand that faith, faith is a confident assurance that God will ultimately come through in the end. Faith is not confident assurance that God will always come through and get me out of every single situation. And there's a big difference. The author of Hebrews tells us that that we, we should have this kind of faith in a particular, particular person. He goes on to say that our faith, and he's looking back because Jesus has already lived, died on a cross, and rose again. And he's looking back and he's saying our faith, the thing that we can put our trust in, our assurance in, is the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He was crucified, nailed to a cross, And it was written about by Roman historians, by Jewish historians, and later by Christian historians. Three divergent groups. And he died, and he was buried, and it's documented. And he rose again, and over 300 people saw him alive. 
and they told their stories. And because they saw him, because he rose from the dead, he authenticated everything he said before that point. And when Jesus died on the cross, he uttered those words. He said, it is finished. And what I want to do is I want to I want to explore what he was talking about on the cross because it's an insight into what our faith can be in and it gives us insight into the places where our faith could be misguided and could actually lead us down a path of condemning ourselves, condemning other people, or ultimately condemning God for not being faithful to us. John chapter 19 says, when Jesus was on the cross, he received a drink. Then he said, it is finished. And with that, he, he bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. So I want to talk for a few minutes about what Jesus actually finished on the cross. Now, for some of us, this might be a review, but it's a good review because it's so important for us to know, especially in times like now when we look around and it seems like the world is just in turmoil. I mean, we could all agree. I've only been gone. I was out of cell reception for a week and I came down. And it's like, wow, I thought we were, we were here. And I come back and I, I hop on, I read the news and it's like, we've gone a little bit further. People killing each other. Racial tension rising up. Hatred, blame. I'm watching Christians. I have, I have Facebook friends who are Christians in Southern California, a strongly Republican area. I've got Christian friends up here in Northern California, a strongly Democratic area. And it's like we're speaking two different languages, shooting at each other. Christians shooting at each other over politics, over race. And I'm thinking, what is going on with this world? But then I remember, what did Jesus actually finish on the cross? It's so important that we know this, especially now. Because it will give us insight and wisdom how to pray, what to trust God for. Here's some of the things he finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, here's what he meant. Jesus made a way for every single person on earth to experience God's forgiveness. That is huge. Regardless of race, religious affiliation, gender, creed, orientation, regardless of caste, regardless of socioeconomic standing, regardless of age, everyone. I would say this, and I would say this to anybody I talk to on the street. Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. And here's why. Everybody can come to Christ. Everybody. Now, it's exclusive because the only way to God is through Jesus Christ, but it's inclusive because it doesn't matter what you did last week or last night. You can come to God today. And he will accept you where you are and love you where you are and forgive you of your sin. And friends, that's huge because apart from God, we are trapped in our sin. It's, it's that compulsion to keep doing and saying and thinking things that you know are hurtful, that are causing you to go down a path that you yourself don't want to go down. Your wife, your husband doesn't have to tell you what sin is. You laid in bed and you thought about what you did last night and thought, why did I do that? That's sin. And apart from God's forgiveness, we cannot break free from it. That's one of the things he did when he said it is finished and it's good news. Another thing Jesus did is he made a way for us to get to God. All major world religions say that there's one problem. God is over here. Sorry. God is over here. Perfect. And we are over here. Trapped in our sin, separated from God. All world religions, the, the major ones, say this, that there's a gap between us and God. Here's where Christianity splits from all other world religions. 
All other major world religions say, and it's our job to get to God. That our good deeds must somehow outweigh our bad deeds. The problem is, you and I both know, our good deeds can't, even if you never sinned again, starting today. I mean, never. Which, by the way, will not happen. But even if it did, you still have to take into account the last 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of sin. Who's going to deal with that? You feel good over here, don't you? Who's going to deal with that? This is where Christianity separates. Because the God of the Bible looked down at this world and said, yeah, there's a separation. But you can't get to me. So I'm going to come to you. And God came in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life. And then he gave his life to pay the penalty for our sin. He was the substitute penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven and be made perfect in God's eyes. And when we were made perfect in God's eyes, we could come back into a relationship with God. Perfect God, imperfect people, made perfect by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what was finished on the cross. The third thing Jesus did on the cross when he said it is finished is he unleashed his Holy Spirit. And if you go back in the Old Testament of the Bible— you'll see that there are only a few points where God gives his spirit to select people. Usually kings, prophets, prophetesses. Sometimes priests would get his spirit, but it was a select group, a small group. But when Jesus died on the cross, he actually told us that when he goes to be with God the Father, he would unleash his spirit so that each of us could have the spirit of God living inside of us. Do you know how powerful that is? that you and I have the Spirit of God living in us as followers of Jesus. We've been adopted into God's family, his daughters, his sons. We've been given his Spirit. The Spirit of God leads us to truth, gives us the strength to live out the life that he created us to live. The Spirit of God resonates with our spirit when we're walking with him. This is huge. He changed the whole religious landscape when he gave his Spirit. Before it was God priest or prophet who had the Spirit, and then everybody else. Now it's God and a whole bunch of kids who all have His Spirit. I keep saying this. I'm no different than you. I just happen to have some unique gifting by God, a little bit of gifting in leadership, and a lot of gifting in, I just, I talk a lot, and God's using it. He's redeeming it. And that's why I preach. I had a friend, we were camping. Uh, I grabbed a beer, and he's like, oh, the reverend's going to have a beer. I was like, well, you're having a beer, okay? You go to church every week. Uh, I'm not going to get drunk, but really none of us should do that, right? That never goes good for you, right? No one ever woke up with a hangover and thought that was fun. I should do that again. No. He, he believed it was God, pastor, everybody else. I'm telling you. God gave his spirit to us. To, I just admitted I had a beer, like... All you microbrew people are like, I'm having pastor over to pray. <laughs> I love you guys so much. And then he established his church. That's what he finished on the cross. He started this new way of living. He established his church. The church that's supposed to love each other, serve each other, care for one another, bear with each other's burdens, put up with each other's shortcomings. Thank you, Jesus. 
and then to be a light to the world so that the world looks at this gathering of people and says there's something different about them because of the way we treat each other, the way we treat the world. This fall, we're going to talk about what's going on in the world. The more I read, the more I just get this burden. We need to talk about what's going on in the world as a church. So this fall, we're going to do that. I'm going to take us through a whole series on generosity, financial generosity. How do we live generously? And then we're going to talk about the state of this world and talk about now knowing what we know about generosity, what's it look like to live generously in the world? And it's going to train us and teach us and, and, and God willing, inspire us to be the church that God called us to be. And Jesus answered life's biggest questions on the cross when he said, it is finished. And the biggest question is this, what happens to me after I die? Because the truth is, we all wonder, is it 50, 60, 70 years and then the end? I go into the ground, I decompose, is that it? We all know, or most of us know, that can't be it. The older we get, the more we, we know this can't be it. This life, that's too quick. Jesus says it's not it. He says, I'm preparing a place for you in my Father's house where there's many rooms. He's talking about heaven. There's, there's a life with God in eternity. And that's what they hoped for. That's the trust they had, that this world was not the end. Hebrews 11 says they hoped for a better resurrection with God in the end. That's what he was talking about when he died on the cross. Now, what didn't he finish? And I'm going to be quick here, because I like the good news first, followed by the bad news second. What didn't he finish on the cross? Right before Jesus died, he told his followers this. He said, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. He wants to give us peace. And then he says this, in this world, you, and he didn't say maybe, he didn't say might, he didn't say could or perhaps, he said, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world. One of the things that Jesus did not finish on the cross is he didn't do away with sin in the world completely. He paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, but there's a remnant of sin that's still there. You don't become a follower of Jesus and all of a sudden you're just perfect. You never sin again. You're forgiven. He's bringing healing. He's redeeming broken places, but there's still sin. And that sin causes brokenness and pain and hurt. Things like shootings, bombings, hateful words, the result of sin that is still very much here. There's a remnant of it in this world. It's not done away with now. It will be done away with in heaven. Jesus didn't bring an end to all tragedy. Natural disasters, earthquakes, floods, famines, lack of water. He didn't, he didn't bring an end to all tragedy. In fact, Romans chapter 8 tells us that even creation, this world, groans from the effects of sin. Like childbirth. Having never experienced that, I can only tell you from what I, I've seen, that is painful, and it comes in contractions when things just squeeze together, and I don't want to get too graphic, but it's painful. Our world is having those same types of contractions. That's where earthquakes happen. That's where floods happen. Tornadoes happen. That's where rain just stops, and whole people groups have to be displaced. He didn't bring an end to that in this world. In fact, it's happening up until this very day. Jesus didn't bring an end to all sickness and death. And this is a big one. Because my friends who come from the tradition that says, if you have enough faith, God will just will heal everything, they forget the fact that the death rate hovers right at 100%. I'm glad you like that. Because literally, everyone dies. Why? Why? the effects of sin that he has not fully done away with yet. He will in heaven, but he has not yet. So we all die. Some die young, 
from tragedy. Some die old of natural causes laying in bed, surrounded by loved ones. But we all die. We all get the flu. Cancer. I think statistically, cancer takes out more people than any other one disease. And I, I don't quote me on that, but I think so. Degenerative diseases. There's just horrible things. Baldness. You know, it's like, what? I'm sad. I honestly, this is, this is no joke, and I got to stop soon. I got to stop. But I missed you guys so much when I was on vacation. I always thought to myself, if I had the hair for it, I wanted to have dreads. Like, I just always thought dreads are awesome. There's this pastor named Art in Santa Rosa. He's got these big, awesome dreads. So all that to say, in heaven, look for me with dreads. I will be that dude with the bandana, you know, and the big dreads. It's going to be so awesome. Yeah, I know. First Corinthians, First Corinthians 15 tells us the last enemy that God will destroy is death. That's the last thing he takes out. Death. He will destroy death in heaven, in eternity, when he makes all things right. But until that day, death is still here. Now, should we still pray for God to miraculously intervene? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have prayed for friends with cancer and watched God take cancer that was the size of uh, uh, like a softball, between a baseball and a softball, and make it disappear. God. Miraculous. Should we pray for those who are sick? Absolutely. But when we understand that God didn't promise us that if we just had enough faith, whatever that thing is, if I just had enough of it, then every cancer, every sickness, every disease will go away. Then we can pray with anticipation without a false expectation. Then we can pray with hope that God will heal our loved ones, will heal our friends, will respond to us because God does that in miraculous ways, but they're called miracles because they don't happen every day. Otherwise, they'd be called every days. God, would you do an every day? No, God, would you do a miracle today? Pray with anticipation. Pray with hope. Pray with excitement. But then if because of the effects of sin, death does overcome. Sickness does overcome. Because of the effects of sin, they do walk away. We don't end up blaming God, and we don't end up blaming ourselves. We say, this is the effect of sin in this world. Jesus says, but take heart. Have faith that one day I'll make it all right. That in heaven I'll wipe every tear from your eye. That I didn't forget about you. That I saw you. That I was with you. God, your heavenly Father, would say to you, when you lose a loved one, when you lose a child, he would say to you, I lost my only son. I watched him nailed to a cross. I watched him murdered by his creation. I understand your pain. I understand your hurt. You're not alone. It's not your lack of faith that caused it. And it's not my lack of goodness. I showed my goodness when I gave my son on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so one day we could be restored because I solved the problem that had vexed humanity for generations. Instead of you making your way to God, God made his way to you. And if you've never experienced God's forgiveness, if you've never taken hold of that promise, if you've never put your faith in Jesus' ultimate goodness. I want to give you a chance to do that right now as we wrap our time up. To say to him, God, I want to follow you. I want to walk with you. I want to be in relationship with you and experience your forgiveness. If you want to do that, I'm going to pray right now and give you a chance to do that. So would you join me as we pray? 
And as we start off, I, I want to pray for our world. God, our hearts break. When we see this world torn apart, whether it's the hopelessness that so many see right now because we've put our hope in politics, and now it just feels hopeless, whether it's pain and hopelessness over racial divides and tensions that seem to have plagued our country for, for generations, and at this very moment maybe don't seem a whole lot better than they were, or hopelessness because we feel fear for loved ones who are being attacked and condemned unjustly, whether it's hopelessness because of what we see around the world, violence erupting, whole people groups being misplaced, de- displaced, riots breaking out, governments being overthrown. God, I, I cry out with a heavy heart on behalf of our church. I cry out and I stand on the truth that this is not hopeless because it's you, like Justin said, it's you who changes the human heart. And God, I know how you're going to change this world. It's going to be one person at a time. So starting with this church, people in this room, moving out to our cities, to our country, around the world, God, would you be transforming our hearts to know you, to follow you, to walk with you, to bring, be bringers of peace, of justice, of reconciliation, knowing that ultimately one day you will make all things right and we put our faith in you because you hold eternity in your hands. And if you're here today and you're, you just never, you've never given your life to Christ, you've never entered into a relationship with him, you've never experienced the good things that he finished when he gave his life on the cross, you can do that right now. Say, Lord Jesus, I love you. I believe you gave your life for me and I want to have a relationship with you. So come into my life, God. Forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, please, Lord. Show me how to walk with you every day from this day forward. I pray in your name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.